You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by, animé par, Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. Stay tuned. We're going to move you. So last week's episode was pretty exciting, pretty feisty, pretty fiery. We had some ladies on from uh, Studio 303 to talk about Cabaret Tole, which was uh, their event slash cocktail slash auction slash protest slash uh, show happening at Sala Rosa uh, this weekend. And uh, we had a ball. JD and I uh, ended up uh, hanging out at the show and uh, in the dance party afterwards. Uh, I had a good time. Did you have a good time? I had a really good time. The, the performances were really fun. They were very political. They were very outspoken. Um, and they were really varied also. It didn't touch on just one subject. It touched on a lot of subjects which people feel the Harper government is sort of uh, not being very good about. And uh, no, it, it was interesting to have something as overtly political happening in Montreal because, as I mentioned during the interview last week, we don't see that much happening now in Montreal. And uh, it was quite a bit of fresh air, I feel. Mm-hmm. Well, Miriam said, you know, this is not going to stop us from making art. It's just going to fuel something new. And uh, and I definitely felt that. And, and like you said, you know, it opened a can of worms for everyone to come forth that people who had a problem with... Uh, with a different the way that the government is treating different minority groups and uh, the charter was discussed and uh, funding of course for arts and for culture and for uh, a lot of services so it was really a fiery evening of like-minded liberal people <laughs> yeah if you weren't liberal I guess you wouldn't have felt at home in the audience uh, but what, what's interesting though is that there was this sense of needing that community because of what the Harper government's been doing, because of how many people have been suffering under that new government, well, new, that current government, I should say, and how the only way we can survive this is by grouping up together and supporting each other. And it's something that I feel is really needed, personally. Well, it was nice to see the numbers, to see how many people were on board with this kind of attitude and this kind of discontent with uh, with current uh, government. And of course, the take home was go vote. <laughs> We've got yeah. a couple of years to figure out your registration, but go vote. As Alexia O'Hara said herself while she was hosting, um, if you don't vote, it's a vote for the conservative government. So please go vote. Yeah. Dirty feet's getting political. So uh, now on to our interview today. In the studio today, we have Rosie Seamus, who is joining us from Minneapolis. She's in Montreal to uh, teach a workshop that she did uh, over the weekend. And uh, to present a work, We Wait in the Darkness, that she has been working on 
in residency at the May, the Montreal Arts Interculturel here in the city. And uh, she's joining us to, to speak to us about a variety of projects that she's participated in and, uh, and started, and also about this work, of course, that you can catch at the May from the 6th to the 8th of this month. Uh, perhaps we can start with uh, with talking about Rosie, where you come from. You're uh, you're from the states. Yes, um, I live in Minneapolis, which is a part of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, in Minnesota. Um, my family is from uh, Cattaraugus, New York, which is our um, reservation. There are three Seneca reservations in New York, and um, I was not born there though, and I didn't live there. Um, my mother is a journalist, has been a journalist for um, 50 years. And so um, I spent early years in Washington, D.C. during sort of the height of um, Native American politics beginning in the 70s. And then we moved to Minneapolis, which was really the center of where American Indian activism was happening outside of San Francisco. Okay, and it sounds like it, today your your work is focused on uh, on your Seneca heritage and kind of and your ancestry and whatnot. Yeah, the piece that I'm working on now in particular is uh, based on um, the matrilineal line of my family, and it uses some, sort of my grandmother's life as a map to um, move through the piece. My work in that it's solo work is primarily improvisational. So it's a very long, not very long. It's a 40 minute structure of dance and film and music. And you've, you've been working in this field for 20 years. You've created 30 original works at this point, 10 of which are evening length dance works. Uh, maybe back to the beginning. What, what made you choose dance as your, as your form of expression? I think I sort of, uh, it happened by default. I, I went to theater school as a high school, uh, full-time theater school, so academics in the morning and theater in the evening, and I, that was my intent was to go into theater. I moved to New York City when I was 18 and took private acting lessons and um, was going down that route, and then I decided actually to give it all up and go to college for uh, science and um, as a way to help my grade point average, I decided to go take some dance classes because I was, I had already had years and years of dance and I thought, oh, this would be easy, this will help me. And um, I sort of got sucked right into the dance department and then that was it. And you, you've studied native dance, ballet, modern, Klein technique, contact improvisation, butoh. Uh, how how involved are you in all these different forms? Do you have a, a focus, a main concentration? Yes, I would have to say that it's probably somatics at this point, but also I teach what's called um, body re-education, which is based in Klein technique. So my teacher is Barbara Mahler. She's been my teacher for 25 years. Susan Klein was also my teacher there in New York. Um, they've actually taught here a few times through Circuest and 303. Um, so that's the work that I teach. And then I've done, um, a program which was based in body, mind, summer centering, body, mind centering for three years. And so my work has a lot of, uh, somatic influence, but I've also trained in a lot of other things. So when native dance is not actually a, a training, it's just, I grew up doing powwow dancing. Um, so that would have been my earliest form of dance that I, worked with. But since I went to theater school, I studied ballet and modern and jazz and 
improvisation. And how much do you feel that power dancing has influenced your your learning and your education in the more formalized kind of dances? Do you feel that there's always an aspect of that which stayed with you when you were learning more? Um, I would say not directly. What there is is there's an influence of my childhood and my growing up. Um, I grew up in an urban native environment, so... I went to a survival school for a couple of years. Those were um, schools that were started by Native communities, and so they were focused on language and teaching from the culture. And um, I participated in ceremonies a lot, a lot of cultural activities. And so I feel like as a whole, it influences who I am and how I move. But trying to make a direct link to like one particular thing like dancing at powers is not, it's not that specific you can't draw like such a straight line um i don't ever like catch myself doing that on stage or anything like that but i i um i think it has a different type of influence this is not your first time in montreal perhaps uh you can let us know when our, our listeners may have seen your work before in this city um i presented a a show at 303 in 2008 Um, I brought, um, my friend Deborah Jensen there, who's a choreographer in Minneapolis and, um, a dancer that I'd worked with there, um, Jennifer Mack to come here, invited them here. And we shared an evening of work and, um, we worked with, uh, um, I worked with, um, Gordon Allen, who goes by Elwood Epps and, um, Michelle F. Cote. And we did some improvisational work together and, uh, I was interested in, that um, exchange between artists from different places. I also worked with uh, five dancers from Montreal at that time. But I was living here. I um, My friends moved here in 2000. And so I came to visit every year because it used to be really inexpensive to come up here. And um, started going to workshops and um, participating in dance classes and going to the jam. I really love the contact jam here on Sundays. And so it would be like my dance vacation. And then I came up here um, in 2007, and I just decided that I would stay for a while and see how it went, and I stayed for two years. And you were telling us a bit before the recording about um, a, a sort of parallel between Montreal and Minneapolis as a dance scene. Could you tell us a bit more about how you perceive that exactly, like how you feel that those two cities do you have a bit of a shared maybe idea or energy about their dance scenes? Well, I think part of it actually just has to do with funding and support. So um, in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, and in Minnesota in general, we have actually quite a bit of arts funding. Um, we're probably the most liberal state in the U.S. that has something to do with it. And Montreal um, also is very supported. I mean, so is Toronto and Vancouver, but this is the place that I've experienced the most in dance. And so there is a lot going on in dance itself. Um, a lot of range of new work and young choreographers and older choreographers and classes and workshops and opportunities. And I, um, so I thought that um, I saw a lot of similarity in the energy built around dance and the arts in general. Um, 
and there are very significant differences as well, just because of the the cultures are different, and yet we are so close in the proximity. It's a two hour flight, to twenty hour drive. Um, that may seem like a long ways to some people, but it's really not that far when you're going from one culture to another in terms of like two different countries and that kind of thing. And when it comes to like creativity wise, do you feel that the, the, the subjects, the themes being explored by dense artists in both cities, do you feel that there is a bit of a, a similarity? Do you feel that there is a bit of a, a connection or assuredness there? I think there is. And yet, I've had conversations with people from here. I think the training is actually can be quite different. Um, and that's part of why I think the sort of cross-pollination is very interesting. Um, where there is a similarity in the, is just that there is a lot of variety of work going on in both places. And I don't think that you could say that if you went to... Um, not to put any of these cities down in, in the U.S., but like dance in St. Louis or dance in, in um, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, or, or other places, I, there's just not as much going on. And, and even somewhat in California, and it, part of it has to do with that they just don't have as much support. Uh, on that note, you you actually mentioned on your own uh, Laura Kramer a little earlier because, of course, setting up this interview, my mind went to that and the idea that she she works with uh, with themes of of Native Americans in in her work as a choreographer here in Montreal, and and you're doing I mean she's from uh, she's from out west but she's still Canadian and you're a, an American coming from a similar perspective. Uh, can you speak at all to that, your relationship with her or your contrast? Well, it's interesting because you remember I told you that I did a show here in 2008. Um, well, I auditioned people and Laura was one of the people that was in my piece. And um, I actually didn't know that she was First Nations. I don't think she ever told me, which is kind of fascinating. <laughs> and not that that, not that that came up, but that's actually how I met her. And so I stayed in touch with those people that that um, were in the piece and Lara told me about something that she was doing. And um, so when I developed the um, Echange project, um, Lara was the first person that I contacted and she was actually the only one that I invited. Um, everybody else was selected through a um, um, application submission process um, because I was particularly interested in supporting choreographers who are First Nations or Native or Alaskan Native who were interested in contemporary dance. And even just three years ago, this was more of a rarer thing. In the U.S., it's much more rarer than it is here. And that, I think, has to do with our funding systems. That they're less supportive of First Nations artists? No, we don't have the same kind of funding structure. It has to do, your social structure is very different. You know, it's like Um, there's a lot more government support. Uh, I know even though you, the, you're struggling now with all of the things that are going on, but um, we, don't, we don't have that kind of support in the U.S. So much of it is really through foundations and individual giving. Our crowdfunding, I don't know if, it, if people even do much of that here, but our crowdfunding is a, is a Kickstarter and these other places are are huge and uh, import, hugely important in supporting the arts in the U.S. because of the lack of funding in different places. And um, 
there is there wasn't any um, particular funding nationally until just maybe four or five years ago for Native artists who were doing contemporary work. There's always been small pockets of funding for Native artists who are doing traditional work. So if there isn't a um, way to support that, then it doesn't really grow. So there are there are maybe like five or six pretty well-known national choreographers, but as a whole, I mean, for the whole U.S., that's not very many. And so, um, so I am very interested in being able to support the germination of that happening more. Uh, on that note, perhaps you can describe to us a bit your, your Echange Montreal Twin Cities exchange program. And uh, did you start that program? I did. I, um, it's only happened once, and I can't even say I don't know if it will happen again. It really needs a, a large funder or, and some presenters behind it to happen. Um, so I sort of did it as an independent artist. I raised um, $10,000 was all I had. And we did a production where we brought two choreographers from here and two dancers from here. Um, and uh, the two choreographers made work on uh, Minneapolis St. Paul dancers. Um, so Sasha Kleinplatz came in and she made a brand new work on dancers. And then George Nicola um, Tremblay came in and he remounted a work that he had already done on dancers there. And then I came to Montreal and I brought one dancer with me and we created a trio with two dancers here. And then the two dancers from here came to Minneapolis and we worked more and then presented the work. And as well, there were other Minneapolis St. Paul choreographers who presented work in that show because originally the idea was this, that we would get a presenter here interested in the whole package. So the Minneapolis choreographers and the Montreal choreographers and present the échange here. But um, we weren't able to, to make that aspect of it happen. Um, our production was highly successful. We had five shows, almost all of them were sold out, which for Minneapolis is actually quite good. It's different than it is here. Like here you go and there's like the audience is full most of the time. In Minneapolis, it's a little more of a struggle. Um, the um, consulate from Canada came to the show. There were all kinds of different people that came to the show that loved it. They loved the variety of the work. The dancers had uh, that were participated with the Montreal choreographers um, really enjoyed their experience, which was which was different than any experience they had had working with a choreographer. Um, soon after that, uh, the McKnight Foundation in Minneapolis um, they have an international fellow, and so they brought George Stamos right after this happened. And so, what was great about that is the échange. Ech generated energy to help people get excited about George being in Minneapolis. So we had, even though our project was really just the little first part in January, um, having George there um, twice and then through the summer sort of created a lot of energy and interest in uh, dance work from Montreal in the Twin Cities. 
And what kind of uh, difficulties did you encounter trying to find a presenter in Montreal who would be either willing or have time under table to to show that complete package? Well, I think first of all, it probably has to do with that I don't speak French and I don't write in French. And so in contacting people, I can I was really limited by people I already knew. And then I think that, you know, our, like I said before, our systems sort of work differently. I think curators want to curate. And so, so sort of putting together a whole package and trying to sell that as is um, already curated in a sense, even though it was done sort of juried panel, maybe that the way that we had it set up was not as interesting So I think that that it, that a funder has to get behind it, um, like the NEFA National Dance Project in the U.S., which is a big presenter. They fund they're funding my current tour. Um, they have a project called Fused, which is a f uh, France and U.S. exchange, and so a French presenter can apply to bring an American choreographer or an American venue can um, apply to bring a French presenter. And with them, what I found out from that project is that mostly it's American venues applying to bring French artists. So I think also, even though that's France and this is Quebec, I think also there's maybe not quite enough understanding that there's an audience here for that work. And I think the same may be true also in France, that they just don't quite know whether or not there's an audience there for American, choreo U.S. choreographers, I should say, not American. Um, and I'm hoping that that can begin to change because I think from all the people that I know in dance here that are choreographers and dancers and and people who go to the contact jam and all of that, I think that they would be very interested Um, so I don't know what that is, but that seems to be a, a piece of it. Just seems to be interest. There is uh, quite a bit of a lack of understanding and knowledge of the American scene uh, amongst the, the Montreal community, dance community, and we feel that it, it's really difficult to know and to hear about what's happening in the states, especially on the independent level, because so few American companies are either invited or get to come present works in Montreal. Do you have any ideas how this could be solved, like how we could uh, have this exchange even with the, the distance or hear more about what's happening? Like there's um, there's on the board on the boards in, um, I don't remember in Seattle. which, in Seattle, that's been bringing, uh, like recently they just presented Fred Gravel's work. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a bit more of an exchange happening, but it's still very rare to, to see American companies bringing uh, Montreal companies or vice versa. How can we hear a bit more about what's happening? Like dance is is very much about the performance on stage, so there's not as much visual archival documents that can be shared like quite often it's not like cinema where you know there are good videos being produced and people can just find that it's very much about the the stage performance aspect of it is there like a way through the internet let's say that people could hear a bit more about what's happening elsewhere well i think there used to be through facebook but with all the filters it's quite difficult it's funny because i was walking down the streets with my friends last night and i said i think i should have a facebook 
in Montreal because I never get to hear about what my friends here are doing anymore. It's all filtered out because my location is Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I think um, that's one thing that sort of doesn't work for us anymore that did actually used to work for us. I, I don't really know. I mean, I think part of it is just structure. I mean, I hate to say this, and maybe this is just not correct, but I think for a long time, the U.S. has had a really bad rap of everything U.S. is is bad. And I don't mean art. I mean just sort of in general, you know. And I think that's really changed. Um, and so the, and also I think part of it is um, how we exchange with presenters. So, you know, presenters are invited to come up here and see work. But probably there's not a lot of inviting presenters to the U.S. to things like our Arts Midwest Conference, um, APAP. I was just there. I know that there were some presenters there from Canada and the Canadian Council. Um, I talked to a few people. But I think that maybe that exchange in general is not happening. I know that Miriam and Dina were invited by Ben Johnson, who was working at Northrop in the Twin Cities, and he started something called the Minnesota Dance Platform, which only happened once because he went to L.A. But he had actually a similar vision. He used to get invited up here a lot, and he really loved the dance scene here, which is part of how George uh, Stamos became the McKnight fellow. And so I think he saw a lot of benefit in that exchange. And I think it takes individual people. Like you said before, we were talking um, on the air that Montreal, people tend to know a lot about what's going on in New York, but not outside of that. And so like, like for me, I've only even presented a 10 minute piece in New York once. And that was just last year. And I'll do another 15 minute piece this next this year. But there's a lot going on, and I'm, I'm just giving that example because I've been making work for 20 years. There's a lot going on that isn't taking place in New York. Um, New York actually is has sort of lost a lot of their funding. Um, dan- more dancers there are working for free than probably anywhere else. Um, there's still a lot going on, and it's still a vibrant scene, but it isn't the center of dance in the U.S., not that there is one, but there are a lot of other places, Chicago and San Francisco and L.A. and other places where there's a lot going on. And um, so I, I don't know the answer to your question, but I think maybe even just like our conversation and like the échange and getting to know people that ideas will start to come up and things will start to happen. When I was talking um, with George Stamos this summer about um, – the change, I think one thing that became very clear, and with Sasha and, and George Nikla, is that if this is going to happen, it's going to be artist-driven. It's not probably going to be presenter-driven. Because of that element that I talked about, about that curatorial element. What we're interested in is supporting each other and each other's work, regardless of whether or not we love it, even. Um, because the, the échange is about ideas, it's about experience, it's about learning how other people make work. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I love your choreography, so I want you to come and do this. It's more about, yeah, like I said, understanding and um, learning new things, learning new ways to do things. And I don't know that presenters, I don't, that's not, I don't think that's their thing. 
That's really an artist's exchange. And so we'd have to have a presenter that would understand the benefit of that, or a funder that would understand the benefit of that, without having to construct it in a way that then becomes not useful. So I think that's how that could happen. How do we hear about each other's work? I don't know. And when it comes to within the U.S., um, how does it work for you? Have you gotten to tour your work a bit? Have you gotten to show it in different cities? Like, what's the structure there for touring artists or not big companies like the the Cunningham Company or you know Paul Taylor or anything like that? Well, I haven't had the opportunity to tour a lot. This actually is a very big year for me. Um, we have a couple of. Uh, Um, the NIFA um, National Dance Project and then the um, National Presenters Network. So those are the two sort of national touring programs that we have. So people who want to tour apply to get funding to support the tour. And then with the one that I'm doing, um, there's a pool of money that's like a savings account for my work. And the presenter um, can apply that's interested to um, have half of the cost covered by this savings account of money. And so that encourages presenters to uh, present the work. of, But it's, it's uh, small, you know. So like my pool, which is a national pool, I think there were 18 artists selected, um, everyone ranging from me who would be in that Even though I've been around for 20 years, I would be an emerging artist on that scale to um, Trisha Brown. There are other ways to do it. Um, there were small programs. There was one called Scuba. There was Seattle, Chicago, Minneapolis, like a little tour network. Or one can apply to be in a showcase or um, a festival. So those kinds of things. But I've actually... Yeah, I presented in I presented in Vancouver and Montreal, and um, I've had a little more luck in Canada, but I think that has to do with the nature of my recent work. So it's it's definitely challenging to get work seen elsewhere. One has to really devote oneself to just doing that. And do you feel in any way that um, the fact that you're First Nations, the fact that your work deals with First Nations issues, um, has helped this transition over to Canada? Yes, because the the um, subject matter of my new work, actually, I think that's what ignited a little more interest in my work in general. And um, I didn't do it for that reason. but And so I actually was a little surprised when... Um, I got a national award and actually two and then, uh, and then got supported for this tour. Um, but it's been a great opportunity for me because it's allowed me to meet a lot of other contemporary, um, native artists. So we say native in the U S and you say first nations here. And so the first place that I presented in Vancouver was the talking stick festival, And so that's where we're going back to at the end of the, this month as well. And um, with the May, um, I presented to do this particular work. And I think that's part of what interested them. And going back to this work that you'll be presenting this week, uh, We Wait in the Darkness at the May, you mentioned that it was about the matrilineal history. Um, 
And which is interesting because Laura Kramer's work, to go back to her recently, uh, Native Girl Syndrome, was also about this, about the, the history of her grandmother when her grandmother moved to a larger city. Why were you attracted to this subject matter at this point in your life for this specific work? Um, it actually had to do with uh, last April, I got the flu. And um, I was uh, going through some old pictures and I had inquired um, with my mother about one in particular, which is actually in the production at the May, and um, was asking her questions about who certain people were and she actually didn't know. And I found it very surprising because the Seneca are matrilineal. We get our clan and our family identity through the female line. And we know a lot about my grandfather's side of the family and can trace it back very far. But on my mother's side, there was just all of these questions. So I had the flu and, and I was literally at home, couldn't do anything for over two weeks. So I did a lot of genealogy research and I started to um, reach out to different people Um, family that would be distant relatives, actually just even looking up people by their last name. And so I started to do dive into these um, stories. I asked my mom a lot of stories about my grandmother and anything she knew about my great-grandmother and started to follow these oral history, oral histories and piece them together with facts. Um, and that's how it, how it got started. And, um, I solved a, a genealogy mystery that no one else in my family had solved, which was really quite fun. And um, and it started taking me back to our home reservation in Cattaraugus. We actually have family um, from Cattaraugus in Allegheny, and then my grandmother was born on Corn Planter, which actually is submerged underneath the Allegheny Reservoir. And I went back maybe eight times in a year. Um, also, my uncle died, so I was going back, and he was 94 um, during that time period. And, um, yeah, that's sort of, that's how that started. I, I wanted to find that history, that family history for my family and for my mother. And so uh, the piece is being made by film that was taken at Cattaraugus and Allegheny, and the Allegheny Reservoir that covers the Corn Planter Reservation that my grandmother was born at. All of the sound is created from sound clips that were taken at those places. We also recorded um, some Seneca speakers while we were there, women. Um, and so the piece is... Uh, small improv structures which in a, within a larger one and each one deals with sort of a different event or um, in my grandmother's life. So I use her life as a map in a way to sort of navigate through the structure. And um, I didn't know her very well. Um, There's a, quite a big age difference between my mom had me when she was 30 and my grandmother had my mother when she was 30. So there was a pretty large age difference between us. And she was living in San Francisco when I was young. So I didn't get to know her very well. You mentioned earlier that your work is very much about somatics. And 
How does it feel to trace back your lineage, trace back your blood history to some extent, uh, through the body directly rather than through the oral tradition? Well, there's a few things that I'm working with in particular. So uh, for the last few years, um, I have really sourced my work from working with systems of the body. So for instance, a different piece that I did that was about women in the Afghan and Iraq war um, uh, started out with a duet called Bonding and Defending, and we worked particularly with sourcing material from the bones that in somatic work are considered protective. So that type of thing. So I've been doing that for quite a while. So in a way, it's very easy for me to translate something in particular to a somatic experience because I have a lot of knowledge about how that works. In particular, I'm interested in um, cellular memory and um, lately also um, DNA scars. So there's been some recent scientific uh, studies that show that um, th things that happen to our grandparents, um, particularly on the matrilineal side, are, um, are on our DNA as scars. And that we can actually uh, reverse that damage by the things that we do in our own life, meditation or movement or, you know, focusing on being well, those kinds of things. And then we can um, not pass those scars on. And so I've been playing a little bit just with the concept of if time goes forward and backwards and it doesn't just, it's not just some linear thing, then the work that I do can also remove those scars for my grandmother, my great-grandmother, that kind of thing. So reversing it in time, it's just a concept. Um, so part of the work is uh, like one structure in particular is a, is a short dance that's about um, removing a memory that my grandmother had that was quite traumatic when she was six years old, her grandfather killed her father in front of her and um, it was her earliest memory. Um, so that's sort of that kind of thing. <laughs> as, as First Nations, one, one of the things that I, from an outsider's perspective, feel is that quite often uh, the, the power structures tend to try to erase First Nations history and to sort of um, paint over, you know, quite a, quite a lot of the things that happened in our history, in our shared history. Do you feel that this is something as an artist that you have to do over or bring back up so that it stays in common consciousness? I wouldn't say that I feel that I have to do that. But I would also say that there is a part of this piece that does bring up a historical event that happened. Um. I am very much focused on the idea of a healing. My work isn't, isn't political. There isn't, um, I mean, how one views it is their own, how they view it, right? Their own experience as an audience member. But I don't have an agenda with it. I'm more interested in how the concepts of traditional and contemporary so in my culture, 
things that we think of as traditional, so oral history, stories, songs, those things are always passed down through memorization. And the purpose of that is so that they are affected by the people who are speaking them, singing them. And so, of course, everything that is contemporary affects these things that we think of as traditional. And for me, being a contemporary artist is also being a traditional artist. I'm interested in um, blurring that line as we see it. And what I think that does is it helps uh, dispel some of the stereotypes that we think of, not only non-Native people or non-First Nations people, but First Nations and Native people themselves. Because we ourselves have adopted stereotypes, um, how we identify each other as Native or First Nations um, can be based on things that, that are not even a part of our culture but have been passed to us from another culture. So my interest is more in that than it is in um, politics or history. But to some extent, wouldn't you feel that uh, that that process of healing that you're talking about is inherently political to some extent? Probably. <laughs> so in a way, like, I mean, of course, like when it comes to creating political works of art, it, it's very much a touchy, touchy subject because, you know, there's the notion of what is polit political, what's not. Basically, what I'm trying to say at this moment, if I'm sure myself, what I'm trying to say is that do you feel that there is a lack of an outward uh, social context, like of really putting uh, putting aside just this like art for art's sake, but really f focusing on the community and uh, the effect that the art can have on those seeing it and watching it and surrounded by it? I think that there is a not so clear division between the two. Um, as a choreographer, I don't want to be dictated that my work must do a certain set of things. And so I still want it to remain in the art for art's sake category. But the subject matter that I choose is going to come from a part of who I am and my beliefs. And they're pretty strong in terms of, you know, uh, how I grew up and what I um, think is important and um, what, I'm, what I resist is uh, creating work which separates me from the people who are in the audience And so I'm more interested in bringing them into a world than I am in dictating to them. And part of that, probably that resistance has to do with that I grew up around the American Indian movement and a lot of very preachy type of political activism. And yes. And I don't really have any interest in that. And um, I'm an artist. I'm not... Yeah, I'm not trying to make a statement which will change someone's ideas about 
Uh, well, I am. I'm not trying to make a statement, but I'm trying to include them in something that maybe allows them to reflect and see things a little differently. But yes, I, I'm not uh, interested in playing on what we call either like white guilt or or um, any of those things. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of that kind of work. There is so there's it's nothing just, wrong with white guilt? Well, no, no, not that. I'm talking about the kind of work that is more about um, telling the audience how it is, um, presenting something about something that is political or social or historical um, in a way that creates an us and them. It's just that's not what I want to do. So We Wait in the Darkness is a self-solo that you've created, and you're, you're collaborating with Douglas Beasley, who's doing the, the photography and cinematography, and Francois Richam, who's working on the sound of the piece. And we've discussed briefly that you're incorporating clips, uh, both sound and visual, of, of uh, moments in your, in your grandmother's life. Can you talk a bit more about the kind of the multimedia environment that you're going to be setting up and how you're using these tools in the work? Yeah, the sound, um, Francois is a very uh, hands-on, involved composer. So I don't actually make the work without him. I don't get a sound, um, a piece of sound from him uh, and go in the studio and rehearse without him, which is a very new process for me. So we have um, four residency times together in which that is the time that we're actually making the work. He is also involved in the structure of the visual work because the three of the elements work well together. And then basically I edit the video so or the film. Um, Francois and Doug and I went to New York together and um, did sound and, and film um, on two, two reservations. Um, where my family live and just to spend some time there. And um, we, we have a set which is made out of paper and that is um, the surface in which the projections of the film are on. And what uh, what would you say is the atmosphere that you create with all these tools? Is it is it a very is it a very somber atmosphere? Does it vary? I don't think that it's somber. Um, I don't want to give a lot away. Fair enough. Fair enough. This. Um, it's very uh, the Francois works with quadraphonic sound, so the the sound environment is meant to bring the audience and the stage all together. Um, it's a feels I think a little otherworldly at times. Um, it fluctuates between being very personal and 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 the sound having a lot of space. The the May is a very intimate space and very much uh, tailored to to solo works. Is this something that you took into consideration when when you started uh, thinking of the work in that space? Did you think um, this is good? Like I really want to bring people in through the sound, through the movement, through that idea of a community sharedness or is that something that you feel was already present in the work well it's incredibly beneficial for us because this is really our first showing of this we had a residency at a small theater in minneapolis 
where we were spending the time figuring out how to build the set and how to make the lights work. And, and it wasn't, uh, um, so much a time to figure out even the structure of this piece. So yes, it's very beneficial right now, right now for us to be in an intimate space and see how that works. The piece, however, is designed to be in three different kinds of spaces. And our tour includes large theaters, intimate spaces, a museum, and a gallery. So we have a residency at different spaces. Our next residency is actually at the Autry, not the Autry. Um, the next residency is at um, University of California Riverside at the Culver Center, which is a large uh, gallery um, a very large gallery and, um, with white walls all around and pillars and a huge dance floor. And, um, so we will reorient the piece in the set to that. And then the next residency, we're back at the theater in Minneapolis, but the stage is actually a lot larger than the one at the May. And so we're able to use the whole stage to figure out how to present the work, um, at a larger venue. So when we tour in the U.S., we will tour to Chicago, Los Angeles, Maui. Isn't that nice? And um, Montana. I'm forgetting places. Uh, Washington, D.C. We will show an excerpt at the Judson Church in New York. And um, we also go to Fredonia, New York, which is a college that's 10 minutes from my home reservation. So all these places are different. We actually also have a two-week residency at a gallery in the Native community in Minneapolis. And we're doing an installation, which includes artifacts from my grandmother's life, um, historical maps, other visual objects, and film from the project that we're doing that will play while we're there and we'll do um, little five to 10 minute presentations. So we have a lot of different elements that is going into this. So um, the May is great for us to figure out what our relationship is to the audience, which I think is one of those things that is the last thing that's thought about. And so I feel really lucky that we get a chance to sort of feel what that's like. And then we get to go into residence again, feel what it's like going to residence again and then premiere in the U.S. So, And you gave us a little uh, tidbit at the beginning there that uh, we, we didn't get on record, but there's going to also be a, a film work showed alongside the, the piece that is separate from the work. Is that correct? Can you yes. talk about that? Yes, there's a film that... Um, Douglas Beasley and I made, it was sort of our first project together. He's a photographer and he wanted to um, dabble in film. And so um, uh, made a work called Threshold, which was also a performance piece, um, which had the same elements of sound and um, film integrated into the piece. Uh, the work was inspired by the writing of John O'Donohue, who is a, a Celtic poet and um, theologian. Um, so I do, I am interested in a wide range of things, even though I am native. Um, I always have been. So my, I spent three years uh, working on that in particular. And um, so we're going to show that. It's 13 minutes. It'll be at the top of the show. And then we'll do the solo piece. Is that going on tour with you as well? 
It's not. Okay. Um, Just for us. Right. Well, because this is really the first performance and the first residency, we didn't know how long the solo was going to be. And we wanted to make sure that that at least people got a 50 to hour minute experience. And we didn't want to pressure ourselves. And so we thought, let's share the film um, because... A, we haven't had a chance to share it yet. It just came out this summer. And um, and B, it would give us a little more flexibility in, in um, still, we're still, we're structuring the solo. So, but I think the two actually go very well together. And um, we will, uh, we're just sort of at the beginning of figuring out where we will um, submit the film to get shown at different places. And uh, as we mentioned a bit earlier also, you did a workshop in, uh, at the May uh, this past weekend. Can you tell us a bit what your, your workshop was about, like what kind of approach you took? The workshop was a um, somatic movement-based workshop. Um, I like to uh, do a workshop before a show in the town because I think that it gives um, dancers who would come to the show a actual kinesthetic experience of um, how I make the work. So the exercises are really based on exercises that I use to create threshold, the film with the, with dancers or six dancers in that film. And then um, also things that I've used myself for, for creating this solo work. Um, we had a great group. I think it was almost 20 people in the little theater. Yeah. And it was three hours and it wasn't long enough. But it was a great time. And for for those exercises, do you use a lot of the body re-education um, material that you teach in your uh, weekly classes in Minneapolis? No, actually, it's quite, it's totally different. Um, the body re-education classes are very specific. Um, they are... Uh, a method and I hate to use the word exercises, but I don't know how else to say it that I've learned from Barbara Mahler in New York. And um, the language is very particular. Um, that's part of why there are so few people that teach it have to take class for a very long time. And then they sort of decide if you're, if it's good for you to teach it. So there's not really a certification program or anything like that. The workshop is very much about assisting people into getting into particular states of being so that they can access images, sensations, feelings, and also qualities of movement. And, um, and then to help them explore how that can be transferred into a short improvisation solo so that they have that experience of finding a way in somatically. I work a lot with the skin and the sense of listening and then using that as a way to start moving. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to We Wait in the Darkness. Uh, we've been speaking with Rosie Sima from uh, Minneapolis, and she's uh, presenting that show at the May uh, from February 6th, 7th, and 8th at 8 p.m. That's uh, 2014, of course. And uh, thank you so much for being here today. 
Thanks. Uh, also, before you run away, uh, we have a few tracks that you've uh, decided to allow us to play on the podcast today to hopefully give us some sense of, uh, of the work. Can you introduce to us what uh, we're going to be playing? Well, one is the music track from the film Threshold. Perfect. Thank you so much. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet est produit et animé par... Produced and hosted by Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon et Stéphanie Moret-Robert. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com, follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet, and find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Vous pouvez écouter tous nos épisodes sur notre site web ou vous pouvez vous abonner également sur iTunes à notre podcast. Listen to past episodes on website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a comment to help us spread the word. Tune in next week for a whole new show.